Well, I want to tell you up front that both your notes that are in front of you and the PowerPoint that will be before you um, are pathetic today. Um, this is, <laughs> if I can just say it bluntly, um, this is a type of message that uh, is not conducive to four points in a poem, as we say uh, in the homiletics world. Um, so I basically gave you the piece of paper in case you want to jot anything down, but but don't get too excited about what's going to go on the paper because it's not going to be very impressive today. But what I hope is helpful is um, what we're going to talk about. See that, hopefully that'll be, that'll be better. So um, why don't you take your Bible and uh, turn to Job. This is... Uh, Okay, and you guys know where we are, right? There, there's a beginning section of Job, and that's where Satan comes and he questions God, and God gives him permission to uh, bring suffering to Job's life. All, all around this guise of why do we worship, and and that was sort of that first part that we saw. And then the middle part of Job is this back and forth, three rounds of why is Job suffering, and why do his friends see Job suffering, and. Um, and in the midst of that, we see Job going from uh, a very godly man, a righteous man who trusts in God, who's, who's praising him even in the midst of losing his family and losing his health. Um, we, we see the, the, the chronic grind of his suffering move him more and more to a place where he's not trusting in God, he's trusting in himself. He's not leaning on the righteousness of his Savior, he's leaning on his own righteousness and instead of uh, recognizing God's sovereign hand and wisdom in his life, he is instead accusing God of bringing unjust suffering to his life. And that's sort of the big middle section of the book, right? And, that, and that's the part we said that most of us ignore. And I hope that this time has helped kind of understand what's going on there. The final section, Elihu shows up and then God shows up, and that's where we're at right now is uh, chapter 38 uh, with... Uh, Job, um, having uh, everybody's done speaking, right? So now God's going to speak. Chapter 38, verse 1, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now God is going to step on the scene, and God is going to... Um, everybody else has had their say to speak, right? And uh, so God is going to step in now and speak to all the issues that have been raised in the book. Now, here's what I want to do today. And I don't, this again may be uh, a terrible teaching idea. You guys can tell me later on what you think. But um, the more I think about it and the more I study Job, the more I conclude that the questions that are raised and the questions that God proposes at the end are a huge theme of the book. This is a book of questions. In fact, I haven't done this yet because I'm going to need about a three-day stretch, three-day marathon, Bible study marathon. I think Job is the book in the Bible that asks the most questions of any book. Okay, I'm pretty sure that's right. I'll need to do a little reading and, and make sure that that's true. But Job is a book of questions. And, and and again, I think that's so insightful because when you're suffering, what do you do? What do you do? You start asking questions, right? When you suffer, you start asking things that you normally would not ask. 
When your friend suffers, when your mother suffers, when a family member suffers, you start asking questions. Um, and Job is a book of questions. It's a book of good questions. And uh, David and I were talking. How many questions did you think was in Job? I think what I just did search on yeah. the question mark, NIV, I think it's 264. 264, okay. Um, by the way, David got a gold star in Sunday school last week. I don't give too many gold stars away in Sunday school. But when I just randomly off the top of my head say, gee, I wonder how many questions are in the book of Job, and he comes back and says 264, that deserves at least a gold star in my mind, right? Um, Do we insert a joke about being a a Hebrew nerd in here somewhere, or is that... Anyway. um, What's that? I have no intention of doing that. Um, But uh, I I did discover a couple of things this week. Number one, Bible software cannot search punctuation. Okay? See, in seminary, they teach you there's this big, huge book. It's It's about three feet thick called a concordance. And a concordance lists every word in the whole Bible. Um, so you can look up the word love, and there's every passage the word love occurs in. And then they make them as well in the original language. So you can get a Hebrew concordance, and you can look up every, every word uh, in Hebrew from whatever uh, interests, interests you. And, um, but I discovered that uh, for whatever reason, punctuation is not something you can just type in your Bible software. and it come, you, know, cause you, you can do that. You can go to blueletterbible.com and go love, NIV, boom, and it gives you every instance of the word love. It even shows you the verses there. Well, you, you can't do that with punctuation. I discovered that, and I'm sitting there. I spent way too much time in my Bible software trying to make this work, and I finally concluded it just it doesn't work. But is it in the concordance? No, because, uh, well, concordance is going to be words, not punctuation. There's another thing that you may or may not know, and that is you, you guys understand that punctuation was not an original part of the text, right? You understand that that was added later on. And that doesn't mean it isn't right or isn't helpful. It just means in the original language they... They expressed what we use as punctuation. They expressed that in different ways. Um, so they didn't have periods and commas and question marks and stuff like that. So you can't do it in Bible software. So I thought, this is going to be easy. I'll just type it in and do that. So I had to do what David did, and that is to count. And um, there's a couple of things I could do. that I told you last time, Hebrew has um, some words that you use when you're going to introduce a question. So I did some searches on that, but of course that doesn't catch everything. Am I boring you yet? Okay. So, so the point is, I, I just sit there, Job 1, verse 1, question mark, question mark, there's one, okay, question, okay, there. And uh, so in terms of sentences, uh, I counted all the questions in Job this past week. Riveting study. And um, what I, what I want to do with you guys this morning is to walk through some of those questions, okay? Because here, here's what I want you to see. I want you to get a feel for the first part of the book, chapter 1 to 37, I want you to get a feel for the types of questions that are asked in that section, okay? And then what we're going to do is we're going to start reading what God says, and and here's the whole class this morning, okay? Here's the whole class, and I will warn you right now in case you want to go get some more coffee, okay? I want you to think about the questions that are asked in the first part of the book by Job and his friends and think about that in light of the questions that God asks and tell me what you come up with. Okay? Because 
Because what we will, I, I think, and I could be totally in left field here, but, but what I think is what we're going to see in terms of the two questions and what we observe is a huge, huge insight to what this book is trying to tell us. Is that fair? And you can tell me again if I've totally oversold that. But grab your Bible, turn to Job chapter 1, and let's just look at some of the questions, okay? Maybe we'll look at all of them. I don't know. We'll just see, see how we do here. And I figure if you have your Bible in front of you and you're following along, you're less likely to fall asleep on me. So um, you can do that, okay? I'm going to call this my Job question mark Bible because it has all the question marks in it. The first question in the book, who, okay, don't, don't look, look, look up for a second, look up. Who asks the first question in the book? <laughs> look at chapter one, look at chapter one, verse seven. God, Yahweh, says to the adversary, Satan, okay, what's, What's the first question he asks? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what's up? <laughs> yeah, if we were using the uh, today's English version, it might say what's up, yeah. Um, we might have to go to the, the, uh, the new ghetto translation maybe for, I don't know. I'd, they probably have a new ghetto translation. They've got translations for every uh, cultural subgroup now. Yeah, God asks the first question. It's in Job chapter 1, verse 7. And he says to Satan, where, where do you come from? And then he follows it up with what I'm going to say is the leading question of the book, have you considered my servant Job? That sets up the whole book. That, what, what that does is, I was reading, actually Ezekiel helped me, and, and Jeremiah helped me this week. Do you remember Jeremiah and Ezekiel? How God said, okay, you're like the lone prophet in the wilderness today, right? Everybody else, my people have rejected me, and I'm raising up Jeremiah, I'm raising up Ezekiel. And, and do, you, do you remember that in both Jeremiah's life and Ezekiel's life, how God basically took their life and made aspects of their life a metaphor for the people? Remember Ezekiel? Which, was it Ezekiel or Jeremiah that, that had to lay down on his side and couldn't get up for like a year? That was Ezekiel, right? Okay, it's like, what's that all about? I can't get up for a year? I thought a prophet was preaching God's word and we just go herald. No, God made Ezekiel a divine illustration of the rebellion and disobedience of, um, of his people. Well, what about Hosea? What did he name his kids? Lo Ami. What's that mean? Not my people. And lo, I don't remember the other one, Rumaha or something like that. It's, it, it basically means um, rejected. Right? Um, you look at some prophets and you realize God was not interested in them having a wonderful, healthy life of satisfaction and a wonderful family and, and all that. God took these men and said, I'm going to make your life very, very, very inconvenient. Because I'm, gonna try, I'm trying to teach my people something through you. We see it in Jeremiah's life. We see it in Hosea. You see it in Ezekiel. You see it in Isaiah. And probably countless other 
uh, people, uh, especially the prophets in the Old Testament. Now, when God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? What he's saying is, Job is about to become an illustration. Job's life, and I'm not saying his suffering wasn't serious or God didn't care about his suffering and and all that. No, no, no. But God is going to take his life and say, I'm going to use this man's life to communicate something to my people. And it's not only going to be inconvenient in Job's life, it's going to be some of the most significant suffering a human being has ever faced as part of God's God's work in him. And, and, And can you see that today we are still benefiting from the suffering that this man endured? Because, I mean, there's, some, there's three friends around. We know that. There's Elihu. We know that. And no doubt other friends and family. But who really benefits the most from what God did in Job's life? The readers of God's word. Okay? This was written likely very, very early on. So um, people benefit from that. So the first question, God asks Satan there. And then, uh, of course, Satan responds in verse 9, Does Job fear God for nothing? Oh, that's a great word. Because, see, that sets up the first theme. Why do we worship? Why is God worthy of our worship? Why do people worship? Okay, that sets up, chapter 1, verse 8, sets up the first... I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 10, or 9 and 10, sets up the first theme of the book about worship. He says again, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all he has on every side? Okay, so that, that sets up the whole thing. You know where the next question shows up? Chapter 2. Who asks it again? Chapter 2, verse 2. Here comes God to Satan. Where have you come from? And again, God challenges Satan with a question. Have you considered my servant Job? Okay. So we see a repetition of that. That sets the set, that sort of sets the table for the whole book. Now look down at chapter 2 verse 9. Who asks the next question? Job's wife. What does she ask? Do you still hold fast your integrity? That's a good question. And Job responds with his own question. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? He answers her question with a question. Okay. Let's speed things up here a little bit. Listen, and I'll just, I'll just highlight this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to breeze through chapter 3, 4, 5, and 6 quickly, okay? And you can follow along if you want to there. In chapter 3, Job begins his lament and he says this, Verse 11, why did I not die at birth, come forth from the womb and expire? Why did God not just kill me? Chapter 4, verse 2, Eliphaz asks the question, if one ventures a word with you, will you become impatient? Who can refrain from speaking, he says. Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember now, whoever perished being innocent or where were the upright destroyed? Okay, that gets more to the heart of their theology there. Chapter 4, verse 17. Can mankind be just before his God? That's a good question. Can a man be pure before his maker? 
Listen to Job's response. I'm sorry, this is Eliphaz still. Um, Chapter 5, verse 1. Call now, is there anyone who will answer you? And to which of the holy ones will you turn? You're in this suffering, you're in this predicament, you don't know what's going on. Who's going to help you? He says. And now what I want to do, and this is going to be harder to follow, but just, just listen as I run through some of these, okay? Listen to the types of questions that the people are going to ask, okay? Listen to this. What is my strength that I should wait? What is my end that I should endure? What's Job asking there? Yeah. What's the point of of keeping on? What's the point of enduring? He says, is it not that my help, is it that my help is not within me? My deliverance is driven from me? How painful are honest words, but what does your argument prove? Do you intend to reprove my words when the words of one in despair belong to the wind? He says, is there injustice on my tongue? Is not a man forced to labor on the earth? Are not his days like the days of a hired man? When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? But the night continues, and I am continually tossing until dawn showing the extent of the pain he's in. He can't even sleep. He said, Job says to God in chapter 7, verse 18, What is man that you magnify him and that you are concerned about him, that you examine him every morning and try him every moment? Will you never turn your gaze from me nor let me alone? Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target so that I'm a burden to myself? Why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? Let's stop right there for a minute. What types of questions is he asking as, as he kind of turns away from, he's, he's sort of nebulously asking questions and then he's questioning the friends. Now he's questioning God. Thinking about these questions that he asks God, what types of questions is he asking? Well, they, they might be. They might be selfish. We, we can't see his heart here, but... He's asking why. Expressing that, yeah. Do you see that? It's why questions. He's asking why, God? Why is this happening? Why do you set your... me as the target of your arrows. Why do you not let up? Why do you not pardon me? Why do you not forgive me? Why do you not let up? Job asks again in chapter 9, how can a man be in the right before God? How can he do that? Wise and hard and mighty in strength, who has defiled him without harm? Were he to snatch away, who could restrain him? Who could say to him, what are you doing? God will not turn back his anger. How then can I answer him and choose my words before him? For though I were right, I could not answer. I would have to implore the mercy of my judge. If it is a matter of power, behold, he is the stronger one. And if it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? 
He says, if it is not he who does it, who is it? He says to God, if I am accounted wicked, then why should I continue toiling in vain? There are why questions. Do you see that? Why questions? And let me give you a few more. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hands? Who will contend with me? How many are my iniquities and sins? Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Will you cause a driven leaf to tremble? Or will you pursue the dry chaff? Why, Lord, are you doing this? Why? Where now is my hope? Who is there that will be my guarantor? Where is my hope and who regards my hope? Will it go down with me to Sheol? Shall we together go down into the dust? Why, Lord? Why? He says later on in chapter 17 to to Bildad, he says, Why do you persecute me as God does and are not satisfied with my flesh? Why do you do that? Why is this happening? Is not God in the height of heaven? Look at the distant stars, how high they are. You say, what does God know? Can he judge through that thick darkness? And they say to God, depart from us. And what can the Almighty do to them? What does God do? Would he contend with me by the greatness of his power? Why would he do that? And why do those who know him not see his days? I'm not going to read all of these, but um, what's the thrust of what Job is asking? And I've tried to focus on the questions that Job asks. What's the thrust of it? Yeah, why? I want an explanation. Mm-hmm. Can you relate to that? Is why typically what you ask when you suffer? David? That's right. 
Yeah, there's a, and we see that come out as the book develops, that, that underneath the why, you know, I, I can ask why in a help me understand, right? I can ask it like that. Or I can ask why in a accusatory way where I'm implying that I don't like how someone is doing something. You know, if, if I say, uh, if I say to Alan, um, you know, why did you make that Lego airplane with that type of wing? That's informative. But if I say to him, why did you do that to your sister? I'm accusing him, right? I'm, I'm implying there was wrongdoing in how I was asking the question. Um, he's gotten good enough at airplanes that I, I ask him, why did you build it like that? I, So do you see do you see the types of questions that are being asked? And, and here's here's what I think we're supposed to see. In chapters one to thirty seven, we're going to see how and mostly why questions. Okay. How does this work, God? How is it like this? Why is this happening? Why are you doing this? Why does this happen over here? Why does this happen over here? Explain to me what's going on. Okay. Now, um, let's contrast that. Oh, by the way, by my count, uh, in, in the, now I'm just going to do the first 37 chapters, okay, just, just those. There's 196 questions. And again, that, that sentences, right? There are multiple sentences where really the, the speaker is asking multiple questions in one sentence. You understand that? But 196 questions just in those first 37 chapters. Okay, we haven't gotten to the latter part of the book, and then we'll compare it with... Now, I was looking at NASB. You did NIV, so we'll see. We'll see how that works. But, but here's what I want to do, okay? Now, contrast that, these how and why questions with God's questions, okay? Flip over to chapter 38, and let's pick it up there. And see if you see if you can tell me the difference, okay? Um, what I want to do, I just want to read through this without much comment, okay? There may be a few words and phrases or things that you don't quite understand. We'll we'll come back. This is going to be kind of a a, 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 a two pass a two pass flight, okay? We're gonna we're gonna do the first flyby uh, fast and high, and then. We'll, we'll do a slow and low approach the second time through, okay? So, so let's, let's keep our altitude high. We're going to go quickly. But, but I want to read this through just so you get the impact of hearing the whole thing, okay? We're going to read. When, when God responds, there, there's basically two. Uh, we talked about the three rounds, uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and they each have uh, three opportunities to speak three different times, right? And they kind of go in this circle for three rounds with Job. Well, God God is going to speak twice, and Job is going to respond after each 
speech from God, okay? So we're just, we'll just look at one of the first speech that God gives here, okay? Now think about the questions as I do that. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who? Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb and when I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? And I placed boundaries on it and I set a bolt and doors and I said, Thus far you shall come, but no farther. And here shall your proud waves stop. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning? Have you caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and they stand forth like a garment, and from the wicked their light is withheld and the uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or have you walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth, meaning the sky or the atmosphere? Tell me if you know all of this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And darkness, where is its place? That you may take it to its territory, that you may discern the paths to its home. You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered into the storehouses of snow, or have you seen the storehouses of hail, which I have reserved for the time of distress, for the day of war and battle? Where is the way that light is divided, or the east wind scattered on the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the flood, or a way for the lightning bolt to bring rain on a land without people, on a desert without a man in it, to satisfy the waste and desolate land, and to make the seeds of grass to sprout? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb has come the ice and the frost of heaven who has given its birth? Water becomes hard like stone and the surface of the deep is imprisoned. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? Those are all references to various constellations. Do you know the ordinances of the heavens or fix their rule over the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that an abundance of water may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, Here we are. Who has put wisdom in the innermost being? Who has given understanding to the mind? Who can count the clouds by wisdom or the tip of the water jars of the heavens when the dust hardens into a mass and the clods stick together? Talking about precipitation and the forming of raindrops. Can you hunt the prey for the lion? Can you satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens and lie in wait in their lair? Who prepares for the raven in its nourishment when its young cry to God and wander about without food? Job, do you know the time that the mountain goats give birth? 
Do you observe the calving of the deer? Can you count the months they fulfill? Or do you know the time they give birth? They kneel down, they bring forth their young, they get rid of their labor pains. Their offspring become strong, they grow up in the open field, they leave and do not return to them. Who sent out the wild donkey and made it free? Who loosed the bonds of the swift donkey to whom I gave the wilderness for a home and the salt land for his dwelling place? He scorns the tumult of the city, the shoutings of the driver he does not hear. He explores the mountains for his pasture. He searches after every green thing. Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Or will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind the wild ox in a furrow with ropes? Or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you trust him because his strength is great and leave your labor to him? Will you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it from your threshing floor? The ostrich's wings flap joyously with the pinion and plumage of love, for she abandons her eggs to the earth and warms them in the dust, and she forgets that a foot may crush them or that a wild beast may trample them. She treats her young cruelly as if they were not hers, though her labor be in vain, she is unconcerned. Because God has made her forget wisdom and has not given her a share of understanding. When she lifts herself on high, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locusts? His majestic snorting is terrible. His paws in the valley and rejoices in strength. He goes out to meet weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. And he does not turn back from the sword. The quiver rattles against him. The flashing spear and javelin with shaking and rage he races over the ground. Yet he does not stand still at the voice of the trumpet. As often as the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! And he scents the battle from afar and the thunder of the captains and the war cry. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars, stretching his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high on the cliff? He dwells and lodges upon the rocky crag and inaccessible places. From there he spies out food. He sees it from afar. His young ones also suck up blood. And where the slain are, there he is. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Here's the $100 question. What's the difference between the questions that the people in the book ask and the questions that God asks? What's the difference? I mean, you nailed it. This is where people camp. This is where we love to live, especially in suffering. God answers with who questions and some what questions. Do you see that? 
Why is that significant? Wes? Okay. Okay. Okay, spoken with authority. Okay. Incomprehensible. Okay. They're putting him in his place. Okay. Someone else. What do you see, Bill? Um, so here's what I want you to see. People ask how and why questions. When God answers, he's asking who and what questions. You say, well, who cares? What, what, what's, what's the point of that? Okay. Uh, here's, 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 what I think, here's what I think God's trying to demonstrate for us. Um, in suffering, especially, these are the types of questions we're going to gravitate toward. Why is this happening? How can, how can this be happening? And usually, God doesn't answer those questions. Okay? Usually, those aren't the questions that he answers. That, that's, God, God does not comfort us in suffering, usually, by answering all those how and why questions. We keep asking them. And God says, I'm, I'm not going to answer those most of the time. Okay. That is not how God ministers to somebody in suffering. That is not how God comforts somebody in suffering. How does God comfort somebody who is suffering? He comforts us by saying, this is who I am. Do you, he doesn't. No. Do you see that? Though we get yes, 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 right. Here's what I want you to see God's comfort in our affliction and suffering is not He gives us the answers we want, it's that He gives us Himself. He says, this is who I am. This is me. This is what I'm like. This is what I do. And, and can you hear as he... It, it almost reminds you of, of uh, Genesis 2 where you have this parade of animals and Adam comes up and says, giraffe. 
zebra, you know. Line. It's almost like God has this, this line of animals up, and he's like, let's think about the mountain goats. Do you know what time they give birth? I didn't think so. Okay, let's talk about the eagles. Do you know how they soar? Of course you don't. And he's got this lineup of creation that just testifies over and over and over and over again. I'm God. I am infinitely wise. I am infinitely knowledgeable. I made you. I made this whole thing. I know what I'm doing. And, you know, we, we can take this as an indictment, and it is, and we can take this as sort of God bringing, you know, he's the judge, and, and remember, Job wants to put him on trial and bring witnesses, and God, as it were, turns the tables on him, put Job's on trial, and he's bringing every single one of his creatures as a testimony against Job in some regard. But but this is not, don't take this totally as just uh, Job being rebuked, or certainly that is. Because at the end of all this, Job doesn't just repent. It comforts him in his affliction. When, when, we, when we turn away from asking the how and why questions that usually God doesn't answer, and, and you know how that goes, right? You know how this goes? We ask the how and why questions. In fact, I heard it this week. I heard it again. I, the question that all of you have heard. How can a good God, finish it, Allow people to suffer. Uh, and, and, and then where does that go? Does God answer that question? Well, if you read the Bible, he, he does. But, I mean, you know, not usually, right? So then, so then they say, well, then I don't like that. I don't like this God. I'm not going to follow this God because I don't think the way he's running the universe is the right way to do it. We start asking these types of questions, and where do they very, very quickly go to? Unbelief and accusing and saying, well, well, Keith's going to decide what's right, not God. Keith's going to decide how the universe needs to run, not God. And that's a slippery slope. And, and one of you said it. When we suffer, it's like suffering activates the how and why question machine in the heart, doesn't it? Doesn't it do that? We, we haven't asked how and why questions for months. And then some suffering happens and it's like, power up that circuit, you know. And then all, I start asking all these how and why questions. And that's good in one regard because these are good questions to ask. But what are the types of questions that God is going to ask that ministered us in suffering? Not by answering all our questions. In fact, you know what's funny? See if you've been paying attention here. How many of these 196 questions does God answer? None of them. And it's almost like, you ever gotten to the end of a movie and you go, what? That's the ending, right? So you get to the book and you go, all these really good questions, 196 questions. He's not going to answer any of them. And that's the point. That's it. You're supposed to react and go, why? Because we're asking the wrong questions. What we need to know in suffering is not the answer to all our questions. What we need to know in suffering is who is our God like? What is he like? Who is he? And as we come to see him more clearly and understand who he is, 
and understand more of his character and his being. It's who God is that brings comfort in the affliction, not the answering of all our questions. I think that's the point of the book in that regard. Do you agree with me? What do you think? Does that make sense? Here's another thing. And um, oh, we gotta, okay. Here's another thing. Do, do you remember... Um, I'll just give you one example. Do you remember in um, Genesis 22? What happens in Genesis 12? Uh, God meets Abraham, Abram in those days, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this covenant with you. I'm going to give you some land. I'm going to make you a great nation, blah, 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 right? Just one problem. We can't have children. Can't do it, right? So chapter 15, God, uh, Abram says to God, I, I got this figured out. Eliezer, that's how you're going to do it, right? My cousin, my, my nephew, and, and he'll be the one to carry on the Abrahamic covenant and populate the nation and all that, right? That's how you're going to do it, God. God says, no, look up, see the stars, see the stars, Genesis 15, you know, such your descendants will be. Abraham believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness. That's where he became a believer, okay? You see that, right? So a couple chapters later, Ab- Abram's scratching his head, well, it's not Eliezer, Hagar, that's how he's going to do it, right? And, and so he goes and he takes uh, Sarah's maid and, and, and they have a child, uh, Ishmael, and that's how God's going to carry it on. And, and God says, no, someone from your own, from Sarah's own body will be the one to pop. Okay, all right. And, and then, of course, you know, you remember they meet by the tree and the angel meets with them and they said, you know, by this time next year, Sarah will be pregnant. And you guys know the story, right? And then Isaac is born and they named him laughter because why? Because Sarah, Sarah laughed. I'm not having a kid. I'm too old and I can't have kids anyway, right? So the promised son comes, right? Isaac comes, laughter, and you can see this older couple rejoicing in, in a son in their old age. And not just a son, a, the, the son of the promise, the son of the covenant who comes, right? Everybody's happy. Everybody's great. You turn the page, chapter 21, 22. God says, Abram, I want you to take your son, your only son, the son whom you love. Isaac and sacrifice him. And you go, what? Are you kidding? And, and you guys know the story. He goes and they take the servants and they're talking, you know, where, where's the sacrifice coming from, my father? Well, God will provide it. And servants leave, they go up, and, and you know the story. He puts them and he kills them, or he doesn't kill them, he, he gets ready to kill them. And, and um, <laughs> now let's get this right. Um, he's about ready to kill them. And, and God speaks from heaven and says, don't do it. Now I know. Now I know that you trust me. Okay. And in probably, I would say that was probably the hardest thing that Abraham went through, even though in the end he didn't go through with it. Can you imagine the turmoil leading up to that? Okay. What does he name the place before he leaves? Yeah, you know, it, it usually gets translated, God will provide. And that's unfortunate. I mean, it's true, God did provide. But it's actually the word, it, it, it's actually the word to see. Not provide. There's another word for provide, and you can take it like that. But, but the, the usual way the word is translated is, God will be seen. 
You say, well, why would it? That's kind of weird. Why? You know, and, and then you remember, he says, generations still call it the place where God is seen. Okay. Why does he name that? Okay. Watch this. Because in the midst of asking all these how and why questions, that's not how God's going to minister to us in suffering. How he's going to minister to us in suffering is by showing us more of who he is. And the reason Abraham names that place, this place is going to be called the place where God is seen because in that place he came to understand and as it were see God more clearly than he ever had before. He saw his grace. He saw his provision. He saw his comfort. He saw his steadfastness. Remember, Hebrews tells us, Abraham was convinced, he was so convinced of the covenant, even if he did kill Isaac, God could raise him from the dead because he was so confident in God's covenant. Remember that? Yeah. And I appreciate you saying that. You know, God does answer some of these questions sometimes. And the Bible does answer some why questions. Right. Right. That's right. But but I think what we're supposed to see is God's going to minister to a person in suffering, not by asking, not, not by answering all the questions, but by revealing more of himself to that person so that they see him. They see him more clearly. And that that sight, that sight is what brings hope and comfort and endurance in the affliction. Does that, does that make sense? Now, I gotta show you this. Look at, look at, we'll, we'll get to this part next time, okay? Look at chapter 42. After God's second speech, after God's second speech, Job is gonna respond a second time, and Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you will instruct me. Now watch this, watch verse 5. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. And I repent. I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. <laughs> Suffering brings spiritual sight. And I think, I think that's part of what we're supposed to see in this contrast of the types of questions, both that the people ask and that God illustrates at the end of the book. Okay, well... We'll come back and we'll analyze God's response a little more next time. Let's pray.